right. I'm an excitable boy, so that means you have to be excitable as well. Is that okay? Okay, so I grew up Baptist, which means preaching is a team sport. It's not, it's not just a one-man thing. So we, we respond to the Word of God. Amen? Right, so if I shout out amen, I'm not amening myself. I'm asking you to amen. So uh, we, we'll get this right at some point. Well, I am, I'm really excited and blessed that Jeremy reached out and asked if I would jump into the series in the book of Romans. Uh, one, because I love to share God's Word. I think it's, uh, it's amazingly rich, and it is truth. It is the truth, and we know who we are and who God is only by looking in His Word. So anytime somebody says, hey, will you share from God's Word, my answer is yes, yes, I will. And uh, so, especially on top of that, to be in the book of Romans is awesome, because at our church, I'm a pastor, a youth pastor down at Stonebridge Church in Cedar Rapids, and uh, we are going through currently the book of Romans, but we've just started. So what we'll probably do is just steal all of Jeremy's outlines and and preach the same sermon. So uh, this morning, we're going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. So if you'll turn there. I did not send PowerPoint slides ahead of time, so again, being a team sport, we're going to have to use our Bibles or Bible apps, whatever you may have, and and, uh, do this good work of looking into God's Word together this morning. Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25. As I was preparing this text, there was a current event that I found to be extremely relevant to the topic that we're talking about this morning, the title of the message this morning is Sin Runs Deep. And we need no, look no farther than our own presidential election to, uh, to find this to be true. Amen? Yes. And there was an interview with Donald Trump a while back, and someone asked him if he's ever asked God for forgiveness. And I don't know if you saw the, the text, his response, but it was interesting. He said, I'm not sure I have. I just go on and try to do a better job from there. I don't think so, he said. I think if I do something wrong, I think I just try and make it right. I don't bring God into that picture. I don't. What an interesting response, right? Have you ever asked God for forgiveness? I don't think I have. When I do something wrong, I I just try and do something to make it right. Now, if you've watched this man live, I question whether or not that's actually true. But... The, the grander thing in, on display here is we look at his response to that question, have you ever asked God for forgiveness? We look at the response, and, and many of us are just incredulous. We think, oh, what a terrible man. How could he possibly say that? But I think his response is the position of many people in America, may, maybe even some Christians. If I do something wrong, I think I just try and, and make it right. Is that not a lot of people's response to if, if I've sinned, if I've done something wrong, and I don't know that I have, but if I've done something wrong, I just try and make it right. And it's easy for us to look at the statement of somebody who is openly sinful and say, well, that guy doesn't know what's going on. But, but I think when we get into the text today, what we'll find is, is many of us adopt the same position towards sin and ourself that, that he adopts. That if I, do, if I do something wrong, then my response to that is, well, I just try to make it right. And, and what we'll see this morning from Paul's writing in Romans chapter 7 
is that is, is not only not the way to deal with sin, but in fact, for any of us, is impossible, even for the Christian, to overcome sin by deciding, well, I, instead of going to God, I'm just going to, to begin doing right. C.S. Lewis said, no man knows how bad he is until he has tried very hard to be good, right? We don't know how bad we are until we've tried really hard to be good. And I think it's the position of our country. As I said, there's a very interesting statement by John Calvin. And he said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. And I think many of us should pause and, and think that perhaps the situation we find ourselves in as Americans is not just because we have wicked rulers, but because all of us have a problem with sin. In fact, our nation has a problem with sin. Let's look together at the text, Romans 7, 13 through 25. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we read through God's word. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, God, we need help understanding our predicament. Many of us, even as we've journeyed through Romans, Lord, we've found that you said that we, as Christians, are set free from sin, but then we tend to wander off and forget that sin still remains as part of our experience. But Father, I pray this morning that you would help us to focus in on what Paul is trying to, to say, that sin is worse than we could ever imagine. And that our battle with sin is not completely over once we're saved, but, but for your reasons alone, Lord, for your good pleasure and for sanctification's sake, for the sake of making us more conformed to the image of Christ, you allow us to have this struggle so that we might look not to ourselves, not to our own flesh, our own abilities, but look to Christ. So, Lord, we pray this morning that if there are any in here who have never responded to the truth that, that they are sinners 
and their nature is sin. And the end of that is death. Lord, this morning that you would open their hearts to believe that and to repent. And Father, for those in here who are believers, who are walking in your way, but might be discouraged as they have succumbed to defeat in their battle with sin, Lord, that they would draw encouragement from the fact that that there is no condemnation in Christ. And we look to him alone for our sufficiency. Lord, we love you and thank you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Now, if you've, if you've been walking through this series so far, you have uh, seen some amazing things. And a lot of the discussion in the book of Romans, Paul has talked a lot about sin. In fact, he starts off the book of Romans by talking about how evil people are by nature that we rejected God, even though we knew God. He internally had planted in our hearts the idea of him. And in creation, he's shown us that, that not only does he exist, but he has shown us his existence and his attributes And we have rejected that and turned to our own way. And then he says it's not just a problem for the Gentiles. It's a problem for Jews and Gentiles. And then he enters into uh, chapter 4 and talking about faith. And that faith is the the key to being set free from sin. And then in chapters 5 and and, and especially in 6, Paul begins to talk about how we are set free from sin through Christ. But then... He sort of takes this turn and goes into Romans chapter 7 and starts talking about how, though we are set free from sin, uh, that the, there's, the law just still hangs out there. There is a, uh, a, com- a list of commandments. There is an idea that God has set aside these rules or prescriptions that tell us what we should do and what we should be, and yet we are unable to meet those requirements and now paul almost seems to take a step backwards in romans chapter 7 verses 13 through 25 he's already said we're set free from sin but then he starts going back into but we have this problem with sin and now we find ourselves going which is it paul am i am i set free from sin or or do i still have a problem with sin and there are many different viewpoints on this passage of scripture on this section there are some commentators throughout history who have said that this passage of scripture is about someone who's not saved because surely someone who's saved won't say things like well i am still in bondage to sin surely someone wouldn't say that especially after paul's already said we're set free but the overarching idea about this passage and i think this is the the correct one is this this is paul's own experience in verses 13 through 25, Paul is writing about his own experience as a man who has been saved gloriously by Jesus Christ, that he still has a struggle with sin. And so to understand why we have a struggle with sin, the first thing we have to understand in this passage of Scripture comes to us in verse 13. How bad is sin? Is sin really that bad? Look at verse 13. Did that which is good, he's speaking of the law, Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. See, the reason the law is given is the law is God's mirror to us. When we look at the law, God never intended, never intended, for the law to be the thing which set us free, right? God, when he gave the Israelites the law, he knew that they would fail 
to abide by the law. In fact, he prophesied this. He knew that this was going to happen. The law stands to show us just how hopeless our condition is in sin. The law, in fact, shows us that even when God tells us as human beings exactly what we have to do to please him, none of us can do it. Amen? None of us. And that is frightening. That's why I laugh when people tell me things like, well, I think people are basically good. And my response to them is, put about five five five-year-olds in a room and then tell me if you still think that's true. Amen? I don't have to teach my children how to steal. I don't have to teach my children how to lie. No one had to teach me. Why do we have to teach kids how to be good people? Because it's not in our nature. We are opposed to God's law. And when God says, here are the things that I require in order for you to be right with me, our response becomes, I can't. It's impossible. But many of us have lost sight of just how bad sin is. And I tell you the truth, if we don't understand the depth of sin, you will never appreciate the gloriousness of the gospel. In order for a diamond to be beautiful, right? In order for a diamond to shine the way that a jeweler would want it. If you were to walk into a jewelry store and you're looking at rings, even the smallest ring, right? So any of you fellow cheapskates out there who try to get away with buying a really cheap wedding ring, right? Any, if you don't admit it, it's fine. But if you walk into a jewelry store and you even grab the smallest ring, that jeweler is going to take a black cloth and he's going to lay that black cloth out and put that ring on it. Even the smallest diamond on the background of black when the light hits it is going to sparkle like nothing that you've ever seen. And you think it's beautiful until you get it on your wife's finger and you realize you're a cheapskate, right? But on the background of that black cloth, that diamond shines. And this is the way that we come to the gospel. Unless we put a background of the blackest black, the darkest dark, the most hopeless situation, we will never appreciate the gloriousness of being saved in Christ from our sins. So sin has to be sinful beyond measure, worse beyond all imagination, for us to understand how great it is that we would be saved from it. And Paul says it is sinful beyond measure. There's a great book called The Sinfulness of Sin by Ralph Venning. And the entire book, I would recommend you read it if you've never read it. The entire book is basically just how bad is sin. And it's a long book. But he sums it up in this way. Venning says, here then is the desperately wicked nature of sin. That it is not only high treason against the majesty of God, but it scorns to confess its crime. It is obstinate and will not that he reign over it. It is not only not subject, but it will not be subject, nor will it be reconciled to God, such as its enmity. What Venning says is sin is so bad 
It's not just saying, I'm going to do the things that God tells me not to. Sin is saying, I'm not going to do what God tells me to do. But not only that, I glory in the fact that I will not ask forgiveness for it. I have chosen my own way. I have decided to push God off of his throne. I am taking my rightful spot and ruling and reigning over my life. And I am not remorseful about it at all. That is the reality of what sin is, even the smallest. That in every act of sin, it's, a, it's an affront to the holiness of God. It will not be reconciled to him. And this is the hopeless state that we face. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and again, another great book if you've never read it. Bunyan says it in even more extreme language. John Bunyan said that sin is the dare of God's justice, the rape of his mercy, the jeer of his patience, the slight of his power, the contempt of his love. So when Paul goes into verse 13, what he wants us to understand is that the law shows us by our inability to fulfill it, even when God tells us what to do, that it shows us just how bad sin is and just how totally it has saturated our human experience. And for us to make light of it then transforms our response to sin into more of a holistic life coaching than it does a sharing of the gospel and the rescue from sin. But here's the deal. God's goal is not the punishment of sin. You know, even when we talk about how bad sin is, God obviously uses the law to show us the depth of sin. But God's goal is not the punishment of the sin. And even many times when we refer to hell, we speak of the idea of hell as being God has to punish sin. But God's goal in all of Scripture is not just the punishment of sin. God's goal is the destruction of sin. Which is why hell is a reality in the first place. Because it would not be good enough for God to simply punish. He must destroy sin. And the reality of hell is the reality of the constant, eternal destruction of everything that is a personal affront to God. And the reality of hell itself shows us not how bad hell is, but how bad sin is. Now, I know that seems really bleak, and you were probably hoping that I'd be a little bit more encouraging in this, but remember I said we can only really understand where Paul crescendos in this passage when we understand just how bad it is in verse 13. And he's not just talking about the unregenerate, unspiritual man in this passage. He's talking about a Christian. That as Christians, we never lose sight of how bad sin is. And the moment that we do is when we fall into it. Now, from my own personal experience, I can tell you that that in those moments when I feel the most sanctified is the moment right before I sin. That's why scripture says, be careful if you think you stand, lest you fall. It's in the moments where we think that we have sin whipped that often we get whipped by sin. Amen? So then the second question is not just how bad sin is, but in verses 14 through 23, Paul moves on and he starts to address the second question. Why can't I fix it? It, Paul just said in Romans chapter 6 that, Believers are set free from sin. So if we're set free from sin, how, 
how, how does Paul go back to talking about the struggle with sin for a believer? How is that even possible? This passage is about the reality of a belief. Now, I don't know about you, but I've not come to the point yet in my life where I've whipped sin. I still struggle with it on a daily basis. So for us to look at this passage and assume that this is not about a Christian, if you read through this, this is our experience. At least it's mine. You may be more spiritual than me, but this whole passage is my experience. Paul breaks it down into a few different reasons why we can't fix it. The first is that sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. So even of the, as a believer, we know that the law is good. The law is spiritual. The law comes from God. But the problem is that I, as a human being, I am of the flesh. Even as a born-again, believing, redeemed man, a follower of Jesus Christ, I still have the flesh. I still succumb to the, the sinful indwelling that I have because I am a human being. There is something about being saved that God does not immediately remove all of the sin nature from us, but in his good wisdom, he allows us to continue to struggle with this sinful nature. We'll see why later. But here's the deal. We are the problem. Paul has said the law is not the problem. And God is not the problem. You know, many people, if they struggle with sin, they'll say, well, I don't know why God made me this way. I don't know why I struggle with these things. Listen, it's not God's fault. In the book of James, James says, when you are tempted, let no one say it's because God is tempting me or God put me in this situation. But when we are tempted, we are tempted because of our own lusts. It's our own desires that pull us away. So it is absolutely inappropriate for us to say when we are caught in sin, well, I wish God wouldn't have put me in that predicament. I wish he wouldn't have put me in that situation. It's not God's fault. And it's not the law's fault. We can't say, well, God, your standards are too high. The standard is perfection. That's the standard. And we may think, well, it's unreasonable for God to expect perfection. But it's not God's fault. It's our fault. We are the problem. Our very nature is under the principle of sin. Even when we are saved, that sin nature is still present. This is what Paul is trying to get us to see. He says, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. And when he says sold under sin, that's the language of slavery. That's the New Testament language of slavery. I am sold under sin. I am still in a state of bondage. Now, yes, Paul in Romans 6 says we are free from sin, right? We are slaves to righteousness. We are free from sin. But what he's trying to help us understand here is even in the Christian, even in the believer, we retain our sin nature. We retain the part of us that is still in slavery to that corruption. It lingers in us even when God gives us a new heart. And this is to show us that there is not one area of our inner life that sin does not touch. Not one. And this is why, this is why behavior modification will never work. Parents, I implore you, if, if you do nothing else, the position that you take towards your kids' behavior needs to be one of telling them continually how hopeless life is if they're trying to do it in their own power. If we as parents 
are taking the position that you have to do good, you have to be better. We are dooming our kids to fail. What they need to know is how desperate their position is, that it is hopeless, that even when you try to do good, unless you have been saved by Christ, unless you have put your faith and trust in him alone, all your human effort is hopeless because your nature is sin and you will always long to do exactly what God does not want you to do. Amen? To present the reality of what sin is, it cannot be reformed. The unspiritual person, the person who is not saved, cannot be reformed. Because even if one sin is dealt with externally, there are many more to take its place internally. And that's something that we forget. Many of us, when we think of sin, we think of all these external behaviors that we may have problems with. And even now, some of you might think of this, these external behaviors that we struggle with. But even this morning as we sang, like the, the idea of the power of secret shame. If, if we were to take every person in this room and individually bring them up to this stage and somehow broadcast a picture of what their thought life has been during the last week, we would all be sufficiently embarrassed by the end of our time together. Right? If you knew what went through my head during the course of a week, there are, there are thoughts that I have that frighten me. And I suspect the same is true of you. It could be anger, it could be lust, it could be greed. And for many of us, it's self-righteousness. That even when we feel like we've kicked a sin, there's, there's another one waiting to take its place. It's who we are. It's part of our reality. The second thing is, in verses 15 through 17, it is so strong. This indwelling sin is so strong that even though I'm against it, it's still there. And Paul starts to get a little weirdly, like, this has been described as a passage in which Paul seems to be schizophrenic. Because he starts saying, I, I, I want, but I can't do I try to do, but I can't. It's so strong that even though I am opposed to it, it's still there. I do not understand my own actions. Or Paul says, I don't know what I'm doing. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And we start to get confused because Paul is almost like, it's almost like he's trying to bail out. Well, it's not my fault. It's not, it's not me who does it, but it's the sin that dwells within me. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to give us a picture of the reality of a struggling believer in saying that I know and believe I've been transformed by the grace of God, and I know that there is freedom from the rule of sin, but the reality is that even though I know the things that I'm supposed to do, I still find a struggle internally that I cannot do the things that I want to do. Has anybody ever had a problem with that? <laughs> we all do. Knowing the law and knowing that you should follow the law is not enough to remove the evil, even for the Christian. It's why when we say, many of us, uh, are, even our Bible studies become, okay, now I know what God wants me to do, and now I know what he doesn't want me to do. But how many times have we started the morning off with a great devotion? I like to read Charles Spurgeon. And I'm, I'm pumped and I'm ready to go, and I'm going to tackle the day, and I know what I'm going to do that's right for the Lord. And then by the end of the day, I'm like, what happened? I've been hateful to everybody I've come in contact with. I've sought to, to get my own way in every perceivable way. But in the morning, I knew exactly what I was supposed to do. And I really wanted to do it. 
One of the benefits of the believer is that we are freed from the law. That's a reality. We're freed from the law. We are no longer bound to perfectly fulfill it because Christ has done it. However, this is what introduces this struggle internally that originates because as a believer, we have a new desire to live for God, but we continue to struggle with the sinful desires. And and this is just hard for us to understand. Why doesn't God just immediately sanctify us? Why, when we're saved, does God not just zip us off to heaven? You ever wondered that? If his goal is to destroy sin, then why not just save us, get rid of the whole sin, and just pull us up to be in his presence? I think the reality is, is complicated, and we'll, we'll try to answer that here in a minute. But Paul moves us on to the third point that he makes in verses uh, 14 through 20. And that's this. In the believer, there are two opposed natures, the flesh and the spirit. We just introduced this. In verses 18 through 20, Paul goes on and says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So twice now, Paul has, Paul has said, it's not me. It's sin. And it does seem to be that Paul is blaming his problem with not fulfilling the law on sin, right? It's like the old, the devil made me do it excuse, right? But here's the reality. Many of us, it would be a much better thing for us to try to blame the devil on our actions. What Paul is saying is the reality is there's a part of me that wants to do it. It's not the devil making me do it. It's my own flesh making me do it, my own desire drawing me away. And again, Paul seems to present to us a divided person. I want to do good, but I can't do good. Every time I try to to do something that I know I should do for God, I can't accomplish it, but the thing that I end up doing is the thing that I hate. But it's not me. It's sin that dwells within me. But what is he trying to help us understand? He's telling us that we need help even to understand the depth of our problem with sin. As believers, I need help. I need to be reminded every day that I am still going to struggle with sin. I have not whipped it. I will not whip it. I'm going to struggle on a moment-by-moment basis. I said already, the flesh cannot be reformed by human means. Even though Paul says, "Here's I know that I want to do good, but I can't. I can't. I am unable to, because if I'm relying on the flesh, I will never have victory. Do you get what he's saying? Paul is talking about our ability in the flesh to overcome the sinful nature. That even though we have been regenerated and reborn, that if we continue to try to overcome the evil by simply doing better, we will always fail. Do you get where he's going with this? Can we, as Christians, behave enough to please God? And the answer is a resounding no. But how many times have we seen Christians say, we got to do better. We have to go harder. We have to be more faithful. All of those things may be true, but if we're trying to do them in our flesh, not relying on God, we will never, ever, ever be able to accomplish these things. 
Because there is no power in our flesh to overcome our sinful desires. You say, is it that bad? It's really that bad. And Paul's going to show us how we can be set free. Even if I approve of God's law, fulfilling the demands on my own power is more than I can do, even as a Christian. That's why believers' behavior modification does not work. You can't be good enough. Even if you're, even if you're a Christian, you still can't be good enough. Right? It's like, so what has begun in the Spirit? Do we perfect by the flesh? No. And we'll see in Romans chapter 8, see, Jeremy gets the really, really good news part of getting to go to Romans chapter 8 and, and tell us how we can overcome this. What, what does God say is the, the solution for this? But we do know that what God has begun in the Spirit cannot be perfected by the flesh. But so many of us as believers, we reckon ourselves to be Christians, and yet we try to live in our own power. God, I'll do better. I know I screwed up, but I'll do better. No, you won't. No, you won't. You'll continue to struggle as long as you're relying on your power to overcome sin. Because sin will never be subject to your power. And he's talking about a believer here, and we know this because an unbeliever, someone who does not know God, cannot even desire to do what is right. See, Paul is saying, I desire to do what is right, but I can't do it. That is not the state of an unbeliever. That's why we know this passage is not talking about someone who doesn't know Christ. Someone who does not know God doesn't really want to do right. They may want the benefits of doing right, right? It's like this. If, if we were to take, those of you who have children, if you were to... Uh, reward your child by saying, I'm going to, I'm going to uh, give you an allowance if you treat me with respect and clean your room and, um, and do all your homework, then they may do that for the reward, right? If we give them five bucks a week to do that, they may do that. And we may start getting really excited about my kid is so good. But if they're rolling their eyes and making fun of you behind the door about how stupid you are that all they have to do are a list of things and then they get the $5, it's still sin and perhaps even more sinful than not doing the things that were asked of them. Do you understand? Because then it's glorying in the fact that you're pulling one over on your parents. Young people, listen very carefully to this. Obedience in and of itself, when Scripture says, children, obey your parents, and then it goes on to say, honor your father and mother, we can do all the right things. But if our motives are wrong, we're still in sin, ladies and gentlemen, amen? That's why I say all the time, Christianity is, if you're going to pick a religion, Christianity is the worst one to pick just on surface value. Because it's the only belief system in which you can do everything right and still be wrong if you don't like the right that you're doing. And this is what Paul is saying. And then he goes on, verses 21 through 23, to say, it will be a lifelong war for the Christian. He says, by the way, here's how bad it is. It's never going away, not until Jesus comes back, not until you go to be in his presence. As long as you are here in this earth, you will battle with the flesh. Verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This conflict that we have between the flesh and and our newfound inner man or our new spirit, this desire to serve God, the conflict is not going away anytime soon. And it will certainly not go away just because you've decided that you're going to behave better. 
He says it is a law. It is an abiding, abiding principle. See, Paul to this point has talked about the law of God, right? That the law, the commandment is good. Now he introduces another law. He says it is a law. It is an abiding principle that we have indwelling sin. In Romans chapter 8, he'll talk about the law of the spirit, which is what sets us free from sin. But now he says there is a law. I find it to be a law. In fact, it's so cemented that it is an abiding principle that every time I want to do right, I end up doing wrong. Because even if I do the right, my motive is wrong. I'm like, God, what a great job I did in praying this morning. I feel wonderful. It's like when Jesus says, don't pray on the street corners. Don't fast. And when you fast, clean your face off. You're not doing these things to show people how holy you are. Because if you are, you're still wrong. You're glorying in the flesh. There are two claims battling for our allegiance, believers. Two claims. Sin and God's law. And we will find that there is victory in Romans chapter 8. And we will also find that in verse 23, sin does not always triumph, but it does stick around for a fight. Sin will not always triumph. Now, you might, have, you might get to the point where now in this passage you're going, uh, I, now I'm worried because does this mean I'm just going to be defeated forever? No. Sin does not always triumph, but you will always battle it. We will always battle it. Galatians 5.17, Paul says the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. God has ordained this battle. This is the reality of all believers. Charles Hodge says, Paul asserts that the believer is and always remains in this life. Imperfectly sanctified. That sin continues to dwell within him. That he never perfectly fulfills the law however much he wants to. Often as he subdues one spiritual foe, another rises in a different form so that he cannot do the things he wants to. That is, he cannot be perfectly conformed in heart and life to the image of God. And now is this cliffhanger when Paul hits verse 24. Now is when hopefully we've seen how bad sin is and that even as a Christian we we continue to struggle with sin. And now Paul hits this crescendo in this chapter and says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Which brings us to this last question that he gives us is, is there any hope? Is there any hope? So if unbelievers are completely under sin, but believers even having a new nature still struggle with sin, then how in the world can we have any victory? When, when do we get to the point when we can celebrate? Not constantly being under sin. Verse 25. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? Now that's a short, he doesn't go into great detail, but we don't need a lot of detail. We just need the name of Jesus. Amen? And I went into this thinking, as much, as bad as we need to make sin look, as much as we need to understand how terrible sin is, sin is not half as bad as Christ is good. Amen? This is good news. He says, so now, then what? Wretched man that I am, I am hopeless. I need help, serious help, because God never lowers the standard for us. Our hope is not, well, maybe God will give me a free pass. Maybe he'll lower his standard. God, you don't understand. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't mean to do it. God never says, it's okay, no harm, no foul. God 
never lowers the standard for us, even as believers. Believer, listen, the standard is always perfect righteousness, perfect obedience. When we become a Christian, God does not relax the standard. But our hope is that it's not our righteousness or our ability to fulfill the law. It's that Christ perfectly fulfilled the law, and we rely on his obedience and take that onto our account with faith in Christ alone. Amen? That's the victory. Who's going to set me free from this? Not your ability to fulfill the law, because the standard is still perfect obedience. And even if you misstep once, you can't rely on your perfect obedience, but we rely on Christ. That's why there's an exclamation point. Because as bad as I am, and as much as I struggle, and as much as I sin and fall into sin, I never approach God and say, I'll do better, because I know I can't. When I approach God, I say, I'm undone. The same thing that Isaiah said, woe is me, I am undone. But man, am I glad that you're not judging me on my righteousness, but on Christ. And we should glory in God for not relaxing the standard. He keeps his perfect righteousness standard. But the big deal is that he applies the righteousness of Christ, the perfection of Christ to our account, even though we don't deserve it. Now that's better than God just giving us a free pass. It's why God can be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Jesus delivers us from this body of death. He gives us a new spirit. He gives life to our mortal bodies. In John 6, 63, Jesus said, It's the spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. I implore you today, if you are in the position as a believer where you're stuck in a pattern of sin and you keep telling yourself, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better, and you're struggling with secret shame because you're constantly failing, look to Christ. Set your eyes on Christ, not the opportunity for you to be better, because you won't. Not in your flesh. Jesus does for us what neither the law, this is what Paul says, Jesus does for us what neither the law nor our own power could do. He redeems us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse on our behalf. He subjects himself to the wrath of God being torn out, poured out on him on the cross the punishment that we deserve, the destruction of sin, so that we might have the righteousness of Christ applied to our account so that when we go to God the Father, we go in the name of Jesus Christ because he is, he's the only one that has perfectly obeyed the law. So then the question for us becomes, is it my desire to live for Jesus? Or am I trying to make God happy by living by some sort of law that I think will make me please him. That's why when that quote by Donald Trump in the beginning, we, we, we might throw stones at that quote, but many of us are in that position. I find myself in that same position. Or even if I would say, well, I go to God to ask forgiveness. There are an awful lot of times during the week where I'm trying to be better in my own power to make up to God what I feel like I've let him down in. It's why, husbands, we often buy our wives flowers. And that's the same paradigm. Right? Like, I did something wrong. I, I brought my wife, not, not because I felt like I did something wrong. I brought Haley flowers the other day, and I think her response was, what, what, what happened? Like, what did you do? Should I be aware of something? 
But this is, this is typically our response. Like if we hurt somebody's feelings, we make it up to them. But we've applied that to our Christianity many times, haven't we? I make God sad, I make it up to him. You can't when you're not expecting it because Christ is there. That's good news. Am I aware of my sinfulness and my constant need for Christ or am I one who is constantly giving in to sinful desires? Now here's, here's where we need to be careful because here's what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying is that we can just shrug our shoulders at sin and be like, well, I guess I'm always going to have this problem. Right? So we, some of us may have even been like, oh, great, that means I can. No, Paul's already addressed this. Shall we continue in sin so that God gives us more grace? God forbid. Heavens, no. Be emphatic. No, that's, that doesn't make any sense. He's not saying, relax. Wayne Grudem says, the more sanctified the person is, the more conformed he is to the image of his Savior, the more he must recoil against every lack of conformity to the holiness of God. The deeper his apprehension of the majesty of God, the greater the intensity of his love to God, the more persistent his yearning for the attainment of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the more conscious he will be of the gravity of the sin that remains, and the more poignant will be his detestation of it. What Grudem says is this, and you know this to be true, believer, if you've been walking with the Lord for a long time. The closer you come to Jesus, the more time you spend at the feet of the cross, the more time you spend in the word, you would think that you'd feel better about your predicament with sin. But the reality is, the closer you come to the blinding light of God's holiness, the more you realize you were farther away than you thought you were. And here's what that does for us. Believer, if you are truly in Christ, when we fail, the reason God leaves us in this state, I believe, that the reason that God allows us to have this continual struggle is because we are to make much of Jesus. And the best way that we can make much of Jesus is to be constantly reminded that there is no part of us that contributed to our salvation. And there is no part of us that sanctifies ourselves. And if we don't constantly rely on Christ, we are in a sad, sad state. Amen? So don't relax and say, well, I guess sin's not that big a deal. It is a big deal. The cross showed us what a big deal it is. But the only way we could be freed from it is that God himself would take our place. Francis Schaeffer calls the answer a conscious life of faith. And you can look in Philippians chapter 3. Paul says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him even unto his death. That the answer to our struggle with sin is a conscious life of faith. That we know the indwelling sin that we face, but that we know the greatness of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then, like I said, Jeremy gets the, the privilege of going into Romans chapter 8, which shows us exactly what it means to walk in the Spirit and not walk in the flesh, which I envy you because you'll get to sit through that wonderful truth. But here's the deal. There may be some of you in here that don't know anything about victory over sin. You might even have made a profession of faith at some point in time in your life. Maybe you just came in, you're, you're wondering what this Christianity stuff is all about. You're investigating it. Or maybe you've been in church for a very long time. But you know nothing of victory over sin. And in fact, if, 
if someone were to ask you, do you know Christ, your response would be like, I'm, I'm not sure. The reality for you is not the one that Paul is describing. The reality for you is that you are doomed to eternity. And not only, not only in this life, but because God is just, he has to judge your sin in the way that he judges your sin by judging him. But the amazing truth is that he has put forth his son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation for our sin, which means that when we trust in the work that Christ did on the cross, in the finished work of Calvary, taking God's wrath on himself, dying, shedding his blood, having his body broken for our sin, and then being gloriously raised from the dead, overcoming the power of sin and death, when you believe upon Christ, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Amen? Whoever. It means right now, today, you can stop striving. You can say, I'm done trying to be a better person because I can't. I'm going to turn to the one who did everything that I could not do on my behalf. We want to invite you to consider that today. And believer, if you're struggling with sin, the answer is the same. You look to Christ. You look to Christ at all times, in all ways, saturation in his word, hoping and trusting in him. Father, I thank you for um, the reality of your word showing us the reality of our hearts. God, I would ask that if there's anyone here today that does not know you, Father, that you would make gloriously known to them the gospel, the implanted word which is able to save their souls. Father, that you would proclaim to them the victory that we have in Christ and Christ only. God, we ask for those who may be struggling with some sort of secret sin, that you would give them victory by allowing them, Lord, the grace to bring out their sin into the open. Father, you tell us in your word that we should confess our sins one to another, that we might be whole and healed. Father, you also tell us that if we are faithful, that if we confess our sins to you, you are faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that, Lord, we only find that relief when we admit our sin. Lord, we pray this morning that we would worship you, that we would praise you with glad hearts, knowing that you've done everything that we could not do in order to set us free from the burden that we could not bear. In Christ's name we pray.